imagination, creativity, play is like kind of kicked out of you. And it's not seen as something that you should be doing as an adult, unless you're in that field of like writing books or something like that, or you're a teacher for like little kids. But I think everyone needs a degree of playfulness and imagination, because how are we going to even create a new world if we can't even imagine it? Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. My name's Mia. I am the program maven and healer in residence here at ESII. And actually, I'm have a lucky special treat y'all because I'm joined by Yanitza. Yanitza, why don't you say hey real quick to the people? Hey y'all. So excited to be here. Yes. So we at Emergent Strategy are not only working to get in right relationship with each other, but we use Emergent Strategy as a way to generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And someone who has been an incredible teacher of ours is Chelsea Cleveland, who is our special guest today. Chelsea Cleveland is a multiracial Black queer feminist and non-binary trans person from New London, Connecticut. They have done facilitation work in Connecticut and across the country. Chelsea also helped co-found Hearing Youth Voices, an intergenerational youth-focused Black community organizing group where they wore many hats such as organizer, facilitator, and program director. They're currently doing freelance facilitation work and are also a champion nap taker. Welcome, Chelsea. Hello. Glad to be here. We're so happy you're here. So we want to first just start off by saying and seeing how are you? How are you today? How are you right now? Yeah, today I woke up a little frenzied and frazzled. And I'm working on like actually feeling through my feelings. So I felt them and they're still a little bit in there. But since I'm more excited about this, that's kind of overtaking that. And then I'm also just a little mindful of the water I'm drinking and like how my day is going to go because I also got my booster shot today. And I'm just like hoping that I don't feel bad um, because I'm pretty busy this week. But if it takes me out, it takes me out, and that's meant to be. <laughs> but that's how I am today. Well, we're gonna send a little special energy your way so that you can do what you need to do. Um, what about you, Yanitza? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm glad to be in this conversation. Um, I've had a wonky couple of days. And in the history of us working together, I historically on Tuesdays in my Tumblr, when I did that, I would be like, it's Tuesday again, no problem. And that's very much how I feel today. It's Tuesday again, and it's definitely not a problem because I'm so excited to be in this conversation with you all. Fresh. Um, I'm not even going to reveal how social media illiterate I am because I'm like, what's your Tumblr? What you talking about? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's great, though. I'm happy it's another Tuesday and it's no problem. 
<laughs> yeah, it's possible to be a Luddite and still be under 50. <laughs> it's so interesting because my tech savviness is very small. Like I, I can do some things as a millennial, but like the where I should be is not where I'm at, you know? But Chelsea is definitely my go-to person when it comes to like, how do I do this tech thing? Okay. I feel like, you know, there's lots of reasons why we have you on Chelsea and some things we want to share about emergent strategy. And we'll get there in a second. But one of my favorite memories of you, well, gosh, and I actually, I mean, I'm like, this is fascinating. One, because my memory is not great. (laughs) So that I actually have a bank of memories that are favorite is feeling really juicy and exciting to me. Um, (laughs) It means I enjoy observing you. Um, I find a lot of inspiration and light inside of watching you be with others. And one way that I was really excited was like you made some gifts for a friend of yours. They were like posters because I think you had an ongoing debate about cookies. (laughs) And um, and I think you may have been low-key shading, like maybe low-key harassing them with these posters. (laughs) But they were really technically very beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, yes, I have an ongoing feud with uh, my friend Mo, Maurice PB Weeks, and it is about Thin Mints specifically, and I love Thin Mints, and he hates them, and we got into a little tiff about it when we were at a training, and then we pulled everyone that was there, it's about 115 people, and we tallied up like who liked Thin Mints and who didn't. And Thin Mints obviously won. I mean, it is a fan favorite for a reason, but the fight is still there. The arguments are still there. And I definitely created some beautiful, huge posters. They were very large. And when he was not home, he doesn't even live in the same state as me, but I was at his house and he was not there. And um, I put them all over his house and then I went back to Connecticut. So I mean, talk about dedication to a point. That's amazing. And also what I really enjoyed deeply, though, is that your dedication also to the play in your friendship. Mm -hmm. And that really um, struck me. And so I do actually want to get back to that conversation around play in a bit, because I I do find it kind of a fundamental quality that I'm curious about your engagement with. Mm -hmm. But let's first just holla with you about folks and be like, I read Emergent Strategy. I'll be in practice. You know, I'll be doing my thing. But why y'all have me on here? So <laughs> so there are um, a few elements and principles that we believe you embody in really important ways. And in particular, resilience and creating more possibilities. And so we want to know if you accept the premise that based on your practice, your rigor, your application of resilience and creating more possibilities, that you would accept the title of being an emergent strategist. Well, I'm interested in what you see that came to those two. So I I would like to hear more about that. But I do think that I am an emergent strategist. And I think even... I've talked about this with tons of people, including Adrian, that before I read the book, I think I was already doing a lot of these things. And I think a lot of people were, but felt like they weren't accepted. It's not the accepted way to do organizing or facilitation or like moving throughout the world. So when I read the book and even like her blog posts and she made like this 
um, like zine of it even before the book came out. So I was like really deep in it before the book even came out. I felt like this is me and this is what I do. And like it added to my practice, but I was already doing a lot of those things. And I, I think the way I view the world and the way I've always kind of shown up in the world is like creating more possibilities. So I definitely agree with that, like pretty automatically. I think resilience, sometimes I have feelings about the word because it can mean various things and I from different people and how like the society views resilience but I think in terms of emergent strategy and how I've learned about resiliency through other places like bold I would accept that I would accept both of those and of course we're not limiting you to two you can be whatever you can apply whatever you can do (laughs) (laughs) you know how you see fit I think makes a lot of sense I, I think it's probably Uh, at this intersection of how you engage and apply disability justice work to the frame of emergent strategy that this probably is coming up for the team. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so on that, that's on the more serious note. And I'm going to ask you a question about that in a second. But again, because I also so deeply enjoy and believe that play and creativity is such a deep part of how we are resilient, right? Which is Mm -hmm. distinct from the conditions that make injustice possible. I'm thinking about, again, your ongoing debate about eating the rich. And to me, (laughs) to me, this is, you know, share or not, but I think there is a way in which your creativity kind of allows for us to imagine ourselves in other worlds it's connected to the creating more possibilities and it is a kind of not just creating more possibilities, but like finding a way to move through what we know are hard moments in Mm -hmm. order to get to those new things. Yeah. I, I think that play is an interesting thing that's kind of shown up in my late twenties, early thirties. That wasn't necessarily always a part of my life as a child. I, didn't really play. I mostly spent a lot of time just reading books, which like creates these new worlds in my head, but I wouldn't interact with other people in that way. I would be interested actually to hear um, from Yanni about one of the memories I know that you enjoy is like when we did like skits at Hearing Youth Voices. I don't know if you remember, but, (laughs) but if you do, I'd like to hear like your experience kind of seeing me as someone who like was getting a little goofy um, because I don't think at the time a lot of people like saw that in me. Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that because that is truly one of my favorite Chelsea memories. And it happened earlier in our trajectory of working and facilitating together. And um, it's interesting to hear you because I think at that point you were kind of in your earlier mid-20s. And up until that point, I had known you as this very serious, dedicated super smart person who I was working with. But then when we did the skits, it was like the Gemini came out. I could see like this whole other side of Chelsea and they were acting and they were just going around and pretending with all of us young people. And they would be like, shh. And I'm like, I could never get that image of Chelsea out of my brain. So of course I remember because it was magical. It was truly magical to see you transform in that way and bring so much joy to like the space, all of us. Like we were in what we called a dungeon at the time, which was the basement of a church. And it wasn't the most vibrant space, but through playing and skit creating and like make belief, um, it became so much fun and it 
we forgot it was a dungeon, you know? There were times where that place was like a store um, or other times where we were, it was a neighborhood <laughs> um, because you just tasked us with using our imaginations in that way. Yeah, and I think like I had been shamed a lot as a younger person of like showing my more goofy side and my like more playful, weird personality. And I have had to like work through that shame and I'm still working through it. So it takes a lot for me usually to show that. And I think it's coming out a lot more and more. And I think like in terms of work, like doing organizing work and facilitation work, everything is always so serious. And it's like, I don't want to live in a world where like everything is serious all the time. And I think a lot of people initially upon meeting me think I'm like a super serious person when like in my brain, like the weirdest imagery is happening at all times and like I can spin a tail so fast and I can make believe as quickly as I want to be and I think like part of what's missing in spaces I've been in where I'm doing organizing work or facilitation work is we're trying to create a whole new world and no one's really tapped into their imagination and as we've gotten older because of things like capitalism and especially if you're black like imagination creativity play is like kind of kicked out of you and it's not seen as something that you should be doing as an adult unless you're in that field of like writing books or something like that or you're a teacher for like little kids but I think everyone needs a degree of playfulness and imagination because how are we going to even create a new world if we can't even imagine it and so one way that I like to engage in the work that I do is getting people silly because it lets the shields off a little bit I I certainly know that my shield will come off when I get to be playful and you get to do high stakes work like flex that muscle of maybe debating like the thin mints or like should we eat the rich and like what should be on the menu like those things aren't necessarily serious but they come with this like level of uh, rigor I would say um, that you can use to practice those skills for when things are much higher stakes like do or die and we don't get a lot of practice doing the work unless we're like actually doing it and like we feel all this pressure so I really in those moments when there's not a lot of pressure can how can we just be playful with each other and like bringing that back to adult relationships as well not everything has to be super serious all the time it is fun to just have fun Chelsea is one of the best like on the spot storytellers ever like some of my favorite games to play with them while traveling and things like that is like they made up this brilliant story about like a mouse one time with a daddy long legs or once we were just staring out the window and there was a seagull and like the seagull had a name and they were there with a purpose and just that imagination right like I can think of you being one of the first people to get me to think about the future and in playful ways but also with some underlinement of like what do we really want to visualize what do we want to work towards and realizing that oh like imagination is is a muscle that we're not flexing or getting the opportunity to build up often enough, like you were saying. I love this. I love the spontaneity, the creativity, the imagination to move us towards something new and or to at least reimagine circumstances as a pathway and a portal for change, right? As a pathway and a portal for 
unsticking ourselves. I, I feel a deep high regard for the role of the storyteller in our culture over time to help also make sense while doing that like space of, you know, spinning a tale and creating something new. So I love that this is a role that you take on in a serious way and with the levity that it deserves. Let's just stay for a second on, you know, the role then that that has with some of the work that you've done, particularly, I imagine this is an important skill set and an important muscle to be using in relationship to young folks, because if they're bored and it's not popping, it's not happening. And, you know, yeah, that's just that. Like you lost them. (laughs) They're not coming back. So I'd love to ask y'all about, you know, how you've seen emergent strategy take hold with young people. Why do you think that is or isn't? And again, the ways in which you have worked to engage young folks with a level of deep respect and honor for their position and their capacity to be change agents in our society. Hmm. I think that, what do I think? So yes, I've been working with young people in some, some capacity for like 12, 13 years, starting when I was a young person myself. And you're right, like it it can be so hard to lose their attention because I think young people are super honest in like what they need. And if you're not providing it, like you can kick rocks. Um, and I think that with emergent strategy, there's way more room for experimentation in what we do. And I think that allows a certain amount of freedom that maybe other ways of doing youth organizing work or just organizing work in general might have some restrictions um, of how you do things, right? Like you have to do this X amount of one-on-ones in a week. Um, And if you don't do that, like there are consequences and it feels very punitive it feels very small it feels like you're in a box it doesn't feel like expansive so I think with bringing in more emergent strategy concepts um having them read the book or read certain passages from the book to talk about the different principles especially in my later years of working with young people especially at hearing youth places we would use things from the book specifically to make agendas with each other like you know in the book it talks about how to create an agenda like with all the people that are going to be there so how can we like collaborate on this agenda in a way that feels good for all of us and that has been so important for me to watch and for me to be a part of with other young people because I just say people light up and kind of take more initiative in doing some of this really difficult work that like when you are faced with all the oppression that they're facing as young people, as black people, um, as other marginalized identities, that that's a lot to take in. And like, where's the space to kind of like actually feel all those things and incorporate them into the work. And I think that emergent strategy has been a place where people get to explore all those things with all of us. So that's kind of like broad scope how I see it, but Yanni, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think immediately my thought was 
young people I have found are some of the most like emergent beings, right? Like similar to what you were saying, Chelsea, at the beginning, even before the book came out into the world, the book felt like it gave us language for some of the practices we were already engaging in. And I feel that that's so true for young people. So um, having the experience with the young people that we worked with and getting to see them embody and practice just the different principles and how it shows up um, in the work that we were doing, it was truly wonderful to watch that transformation happen in our work. And sometimes, you know, it was a little bit slower than others. And it were like watching the young people being able to embrace it with much more capacity than the adults, right? Like I think the adults had a harder time with those shifts, but the young people were just like down with it. Yeah. One example that really sticks out to me, and I think it's small, but it's huge, is like I was talking with a circle of um, some of our youth members. I don't know exactly what we were doing, but we needed to like feel like we were in it together. Like we needed to feel like we are not just individual people about to do this action or this escalation, like something hard was about to happen. And so we talked about how to move together as like a murmuration, how to move together as birds and how there isn't, one specific leader it's going to be like all of us looking to our left to our right to our front to our back and we all have to be there together and we're going to move to the same place with one another and then we did some like body movement exercise where we were like in sync with one another and so we would feel that in our actual bodies like how it is to, to be in sync with one another and so it was like the talking through it was the feeling and then afterwards like well, what was that like? And like, how do we think we can like move forward in this way as this like flock of birds going towards this really difficult thing we're about to do? And I think that from my memory, like people really enjoyed that practice of even like moving and like physically moving their bodies in sync with one another and taking that time to actually feel. And that's another important thing that I think that emergent strategy offers is like, feeling and like really feeling what's going on in yourself, which is very difficult to do. It can be very um, triggering to do. Um, it can be sometimes almost impossible to do for some people, but like what are the small ways we can get in touch with our bodies and what are the small ways we can get in touch with our community with one another and practice with one another. And so that imagery that, you know, Adrian offers of the, the murmuration, the birds, was really something that stuck with that circle of young people as we moved into our escalation tactic. That was really scary. And then I think it made it so much more powerful for all of us. I, I know for me it was to do that with each other. I love that. I um, And I feel how important it is to have those embodied experiences of connection, of feeling together, and a feeling of like, you know, that oneness in many ways before doing something that is so high stakes. And in particular, I think about, like I've done some of that form of exercise with different groups of people. And something I'm always really struck by is if we're doing the same action, not all bodies can do the same thing in the same way. And so what process it takes for people to move from trying to do it the exact way you know, feeling the need to conform or to, you know, and then giving themselves the permission or the space to figure out actually what's going to work that is of this movement or of this, it still allows for connection, but doesn't sacrifice their own well-being inside of that. 
Um, and how often people have those reflections about that too, right? Like have those reflections about, oh man, that, that took a second. It took a second for me to figure out what was going to work for me inside of this and to give myself the permission to then do something else. And also then, I mean, in your case, it sounds like y'all already knew you had a, a shared goal for why you were doing this and what it was helping preparing you for. Um, I think in some groups, it's also that space to recognize that there's something shared because also you have the people who will be like detractors and be like, hold up, I don't want to do this. You know, <laughs> like, wait, why are we all doing this? <laughs> you know, so there's also that. Um, um, I love that exercise and I love the versions of it that exist and that what it gave y'all. And I think to this point about like bodies and access, I do want to talk a little bit about just access in general. I think you are a teacher for many of us about disability justice and access and um, the relationships, uh, well, what it takes for us to show up well for each other and with each other, what we need to do to, to make our work uh, accessible to everyone. And so in particular, do you see natural alignments or are there natural alignments between disability justice and emergent strategy? Yes, I think there are. I think even in the imagery of emergent strategy of like all the plants and the fungi and the animals that pops up in the book and pops up in how people speak about emergent strategy, not all of those things are the same and they have to work together. You know, like the fungi and trees like have this relationship with one another, yet they are not even remotely the same, yet they help support each other and they're there for each other's needs. And it's not always perfect. And sometimes things don't go right. And that happens in the real world with, well, that is the real world, but that happens with humans as well. And I think like the, the difference that I'm kind of speaking to within the larger earth and all of the beautiful things on earth while they may not be disabled or we don't label it as disabled because they're not humans, there are differences and there are differences of that they work through with each other in nature. And I think like within something like creating more possibilities, when I view a world where disabled folks are able to actually be comfortable in the world and have full access and don't have to even think about it anymore because it just is that's a world I want to see when we're creating more possibilities. Um, with resilience, the, the other one you spoke of about me, I see that disabled people, especially Black disabled people, we've had to have a lot of resilience to even survive in this world over countless generations. And I think that to be able to still be creating such amazing beautiful disabled communities in this really ableist world there has to be some resilience there especially when I see right now with like COVID a lot of the things that and I heard this term recently so I don't remember where I heard it but I'm gonna use it um pre-disabled people so people who are not yet disabled but will be one day are using these things that disabled people have created to survive this pandemic and I also want to say pre-disabled, I just want to make a note on that is like, you know, if you live long enough, you will become disabled, every person on this planet. And so we have to be living in a world where people 
give a shit about disabled people, not only for their community and people in the world and just being a nice, kind human being, but also for yourself, because one day that is going to happen. Um, and you don't want to live in a world where people don't care about you and your needs. So I just want to say that's why pre-disabled, but it could also be non-disabled or able-bodied. But yeah, I do see emergent strategy as a way to kind of work within like disability justice. But I think, you know, it also depends on the people. People can like take something like emergent strategy and not create a good space for disabled people, not work with disabled people and really limit the access of whatever they're trying to do so that disabled people don't want to come. And so I think that it really also depends on who's kind of wielding the principles and wielding the knowledge of what emergent strategy is. So keeping that in mind as well. Always who is wielding matters and how you wield and in community with whom. Well, so to that end, though, I think we want to know what do disabled organizers know about community and health that everyone needs to know? And you talked a little bit already about like how we've been able to move through the COVID pandemic in many ways because of the infrastructure and systems set up by disabled folks. And so maybe you can give a few highlights there, but then also, you know, what do we need to know? I think there are a million things people need to know. When I was doing a lot of organizing work, it felt at times, and a lot of the time, to be really ableist. Like the spaces we were in, even in my own organization, I think every organization, but like has to work through the ableism that's popping out. And it's really hard to do, right? Like we are working on like learning about, you know, what is white supremacy? What is anti-blackness? What is, what is capitalism? Like we have like the, the bits of our curriculum or the bits of like what we're studying, the things that we're kind of seeing and disability justice is often left out and it's not yet seen. I don't think maybe now it's becoming more recognized in the work that people are doing to like even like have a passing thought about it but I would feel sometimes really bad in spaces I was in because I have one memory of there was a bunch of youth organizing groups we had to do these trainings every month um, part of a grant and the space that we were in you had to go down some stairs to get into the space and like one of the young people was in a wheelchair and there wasn't an easy way like there wasn't a ramp there wasn't an elevator that she could use to get down into the space so I don't remember how that got fixed but in the moment it's like what the fuck like I think you need to be able to know that like who your participants are in the space like asking basic access needs I think is like something everyone has to do and that's bare minimum. Like that's the barest minimum you can do is just asking what people need and then delivering on that as best as you can. And I think so many people ask nowadays, but like don't really deliver on how they can help create that accessible space for everyone. Um, as best of your ability, you're not going to be able to meet every single need, but how can you try to be there for the people and be in communication with those people about their needs so I think people need to do that is like, even in your meetings, like when you are starting a meeting and you're doing check-ins, I hope people are doing check-ins. That's a good way to get to know each other every single time you're meeting with people. 
is just asking like what are your access needs and reminding people that everyone has them not just disabled people and that disabled people have brought this language to other folks but everyone has needs they might not be able to fully understand what they are maybe they're not connected to their body or connected to like what's going on that they need to do something to help them stay focused in the meeting or help them stay present but everyone has them so asking those is important I think also I think a lot of people might think of the physical space first as well like can people get into the space like is it wheelchair and scooter friendly um do you use soap and lotion and sprays in the building that has sense and that's you know that's a way to also to practice like being in community with another's like can people physically even be in your space like I know that I would had to fight really hard in a lot of places to make sure that you know when we're using things like soap that it's unscented but that's also bare minimum. I think people really need to just like be in community and relationship with disabled people and hear on a day-to-day basis what we need and like be okay with that. Because as someone who's disabled, sometimes I physically can't get out of bed. Like my body hurts so much, I can't get out of bed and I can't do the things I said I would be able to do that day. And I have felt a lot of shame about that. I'm not doing it on purpose. I don't actually want to be in bed all day. It's not actually comfortable when your body's forcing you to lay down. But people have made me feel really, really bad about it and have shared their disappointment with me that I couldn't do X, Y, and Z on this day. And so instead of actually listening to what I was going through, how I was feeling, how it's affecting me, how it's affecting my work, like, Um, and shifting how we actually do our work with each other so that you know this is going to happen when I get flare-up. So this is not a one-time deal. It's not me getting a cold. This is going to happen, you know, fairly regularly. And the more stress I have, the more flare-ups I'm going to get. So to know that, how do we shift our organization? How do we shift our relationship with one another to know that that's going to happen and then that's going to be okay. Like the organization is not going to fail because Chelsea missed a couple of days. You might feel more stress because of that, right? So how how do we shift who does what work? What work do we let go of for the day? And letting people know that that's fine, like letting things fall is fine. And that because of capitalism, we always want to produce, produce, produce. And I think disability justice teaches us that we are worthy whether or not we're producing. And me laying there in bed in pain because of my flare-up, I am fully worthy and I should not feel bad about, do I have enough sick days to like, you know, pay my bills? Like what kind of capitalist bullshit is that? I think even on a policy level, like what ableist things are we doing in our policies that make it really difficult for disabled people to show up in the work? And in fact, there are so many people, you know, working with young people, working with the staff I've worked with who just by listening to them and as a disabled person, I'm like, you're disabled. Like you are disabled, but you don't know it. Like you don't have that language or it's scary to put that label on yourself because it feels like another oppression. It is right. Like you're going to be oppressed because you're disabled, but there's so many people I'm like, you're disabled and you don't even know it. And you're pushing yourself in a really ableist capitalist way. That's like grinding you to the bone. And we're not even listening to our own bodies. So I would also say people 
in organizing work need to listen to their bodies and go like, hey, my body like needs to check out right now. Well, let me check out. And that's going to be fine. And we're not going to make that person feel bad about having to do that. And so I think the key thing out of all the things I've said is just really just listening to disabled people and like individual disabled people you have in your life that you have in your organization that are members and listening for people that have sickness, have illness, that have asthma, like that's a thing, that's that's a disability. And so many black people have asthma. And like listening to that and going, oh, this is a thing in our organization. We just don't label it or they don't label it as disabled. But we need to keep in mind how our organization is showing up for even the depressed people, the anxious people, that's a disability. How are we showing up in a way that like allows all of us to show up in our full selves rather than showing up as productive workers under capitalism? Yeah, I really appreciate this and think it's a deep learning and a, a journey to get there because I, I think this internalized notion of productivity gets rewired in movements as urgency to shift conditions for our people as like we got to do this because otherwise the attacks on our people are real their livelihoods or you know their well-being everything is at stake you know so it becomes something different than framed differently as capitalist productivity but as commitment to yeah. our you know our purpose and commitment to our vision Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and in many cases, there may not be the a wide enough or broad enough team to distribute or redistribute labor or enough shared trust yeah. to then say we can, you know, we can shift, we can move how this is happening or when this needs to happen um, in order to make the changes in pace or to acknowledge what's happening in real time. And I've heard from many organizations in this time who've gone and worked to navigate the pandemic in different ways saying, yeah, we actually did not slow down. We just sped up or we just kept going. And it's like, wow, how to be like so deeply out of sync with, you know, with the needs of the people in order to somehow serve the needs of the people. It's like a pretty interesting juxtaposition. So I wonder what, you know, there's the listening and there's also the belief that we can be creative and adaptive in order to then also meet those needs and meet what we've heard rather than to ignore them and to believe that what we initially had at stake can't shift. Yeah. I would be interested in hearing from you, Yanni, like, what was it like for me to bring up disability and disability justice when we worked together at Hearing Youth Voices and like tried to push for those changes? Because on my end, it was like one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to do. And it's like actually leaves a little of my heart broken of like how difficult it was. And I just wonder how it was on the other side, at least from one perspective, your perspective. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Chelsea. And that's real. Like, I remember watching you go through that heartbreak and like, still we talk about it sometimes, you know, but to watch and experience the organization taking that on, I think there was something about permission. Like as an individual, you came back and brought all this information around 
disability justice. And like, these are some practices that I think that we should embody and take on as an organization to move forward in a better, healthier way, less ableist way. And you're right, you know, it was met with resistance. And also, I think it was brilliant to watch young people embrace it faster. Going back to that point of young people are so emergent, right? Um, I feel like young people before other adults on staff were some of the first people to be like, hmm, am I a person who lives with disabilities? Like, it's true. Depression, anxiety. Oh, my God. Um, And to watch the slow shifts in the young people that I think forced the rest of the adults to kind of like fall align. And I don't think it was at a fast pace at all. It was a very slow pace, right? But to see how young people were the ones to be like, hold up, where are access needs? You know, like we cannot proceed in this meeting without our access needs. I can think of that just being such a beautiful thing. And also, you know, adults having to fall in line with that to make the adjustments and the and adapt to make space for it. So I think all of that is to say, like, there was something in you bringing that into our space that gave all of us permission to think differently and, like, maybe step away from that internalized sense of productivity and internalized capitalism and towards more human ways of working. struck by the I'm struck by the statement that you said of like the heartbreak the heartbreak in having to advocate the heartbreak in having to like push for the change and there's two threads that are coming up to me in here so one is like what would have made that less heartbreaking you know just like as a as we kind of think about messages for folks like what are the components of moving away that feel heartbreaking? Is it the aloneness? Is the is it the speed of uptake? Is it the, you know, what is it that felt heartbreaking? I think part of the heartbreak is not necessarily moving slowly. I advocate a lot for moving slowly. And I think when you're bringing something new into the work or you're bringing something new into your relationships with people, that it can be good to kind of do one thing at a time. Like, how can we do this one thing? and do it really well and then we'll move on to other things but I think the heartbreak came from this feeling I got where it happened at multiple times not just for disability justice but it would happen also for like bringing blackness into the organization like really focusing on the fact that everyone here is black except for one person and we are not talking about that or like actually incorporating that into the work at all and we keep calling each other like a people of color <laughs> and it's like how do we like even acknowledge what's going on so with disability justice in particular the heartbreak that I feel there is this feeling of you're bringing this up Chelsea because you're disabled and you want these things kind of like individualizing it rather than like this is actually going to be good for everybody whether you're disabled or not and that we actually need to be doing these things like there's no question about it so even if we can't fully commit to 100% of all the things which is not going to happen and 
just a few talks and a few workshops. It's, that's ridiculous and not going to happen. But I think to show that we're moving towards the things that we should be doing and messing up and learning our lessons and trying again and talking to more people about what they need and da 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 da, da like doing all of these things and showing it's about for the greater community. It's about the new world. It's about creating new possibilities. It's about listening to the wisdom of the disabled organizers and the activists that have been doing this work for a very, very, very long time. And the fact that we are able to like even have these organizations, even do this movement work, we have to give thanks to so many of our disabled ancestors who like Harriet Tubman she was disabled and people bring her up all the time as like this black woman who got so many enslaved people free and the importance of that but leave out the fact that she had a head injury that that's what brought her her visions of freedom that she would see these visions of like we are free and say that we are free, even as people were not free, kind of like living into this affirmation of like, we are going to do this, we are going to be free, that came from her disability, that wisdom came from a disabled black woman. When we talk about Octavia Butler writing the parable of the sower, Lauren Alamina is also disabled, and how she is able to do her amazing work is also through her disability of being able to actually feel physically and emotionally what other people are feeling and that became an asset for her and so I wasn't feeling like people were seeing what I was bringing as an asset and wasn't seeing my like crip wisdom like or disabled wisdom or the wisdom from the the ache in my bones that was going to help us move forward in how much more amazing this world could be if we actually gave a shit about disabled people and so it felt like a Chelsea problem and I felt really alone so you brought up being alone so even though I felt like I was surrounded by people with illness and sickness and chronic pain and mental health issues and were disabled and all of these words that you can use I was surrounded by these people but people didn't see themselves in that way and didn't see why we needed to do this and again I think you know Yanni brought up young people were able to understand and kind of incorporate and embody these things a lot quicker than adults and I do love that so I often have most of my problems with other adults in like the larger organizing world not just my organization but wherever I went I would have these issues but it just felt like I'm in this alone and it feels really sad. And I think a lot of disabled people only work with other disabled people on this stuff because we are met with like horrible ableism that's like excused, that's like seen as okay, as seen as we're the problem and that we need to like, we can't do anything. Like we're in our beds and we can't do anything. So like let people go out in the streets and march when like literally I can't do that. So I think... I wasn't allowed to show up always as fully as myself in organizing spaces as I would have liked. And I try really hard to always say that I'm disabled. This is what I want. This is what I need. Like, keep this in mind. Like, we need this. Because I know a lot of disabled people won't do that because they're afraid of, like, what will happen and the backlash and feeling alone. And those are the exact things that will happen. But I, I think that I need to keep 
speaking up and letting people know what I personally need and what people need to think about and what they actually need to change and what they actually need to do in their work to not just include us. Like, I don't want to be included. Like, I just want to be thought of as like just part of the community, part of the work. Like, I don't want to be like, hey, grab a seat. Like, we're going to include you now. That doesn't feel good either. But the heartbreak really is just like, this is only for you. And we don't care about that. There are more important things than you. And that sucks too, because even if it's just for me, I deserve these things as a human. I deserve them. So that's where a lot of the heartbreak was. Thank you for sharing that. Um, That feels both tender and so important. And uh, for sitting with how we want actually all of our liberatory practices to be embraced, right? Like that we will all benefit. So this is not just for the one. And it's also okay if it's for the one as a way, as in a path forward for all of us, right? Like we can actually listen to, that's called, you know, centering the margins, so to speak, right? We learned. So speaking to that, so the other thread of this question was, you know, folks who have learned from heartbreak and use that, and you brought up Lauren Alamina. So I do want to ask you about the Octavia E. Butler tarot deck, because you have been doing some things to help bring the wisdom, the visions, the the teachings for us um, in a way that many of us appreciate. So how did you know it was time to make an Octavia E. Butler tarot deck? What was the process? Yeah. So five years ago, I had a dream, like I was sleeping and I had a dream. And at that point I'd been to so many different conferences and trainings that it infiltrated my mind. And in the dream, I was in such a place and there was, you know, those kind of long white tables, those fold out tables where people will put their stuff to sell at these things. And on the table was an Octavia E. Butler deck. And I don't often remember any parts of my dreams. I wake up and they're gone, but this one lingered a bit. And I have a lot of ideas. Like you can ask anyone, like I have a million ideas at all times. And I think that's just part of, I have ADHD, so that's how my brain is set up, is to just be going at 100 miles an hour. But I normally kind of put those things to the side because I'm like, I'm never going to do this. This is too much work, too much energy. I have so much stuff on my plate already, or I don't even know where to begin. But I texted Adrian Marie Brown about it because we're both geeks about Octavia Butler. And I was like, hey, I had this dream. Like, do you want to create this for real? And they were really excited about it, obviously, from the jump. And then Adrian asked if we could bring in Alta Star, who is an amazing, an amazing person and like has been reading tarot since like the 60s and has a huge collection. And it's just an amazing person. But I know both of them through Bold. And we were like, yeah, let's do this. So very informally, when we would go to Bold National Gatherings, we would come together like maybe once or twice. And we just started slowly putting things in. It was kind of on and off, on and off, on and off of like work being done, not having a clear vision of how we would do any of this. And I don't know exactly when, but we started to get a little more serious about 
doing some work. So I like bought physical copies of a bunch of Octavia E. Butler books so I could highlight different quotes because the tarot deck, the way it is going to work, is each card will have a quote from something that she's written. And so all of us were like rereading all of the books and finding good quotes that would align with the meaning traditionally of the tarot cards. And we just started doing that. So slowly we started to like come together more formally and brought in a bunch of artists. We brought in AK Press and we brought in a designer and editor and had two really great people come in and like kind of hold all of it for us and like send emails and create to-do lists and da 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 all this stuff. So that now it is pretty much done. Like all the parts that we need to like put together are completed and it's been you know five years of like trying to do that but it takes it was just I think a lesson in taking time like I think you know one could have really rushed the project and felt really bad that it was taking a long time but I don't feel any of those things and I'm glad it wasn't rushed and I feel like everything happened when it needed to happen and yeah so that's kind of how it started a little bit of the flow of the work and where we are now fresh and you know it's gonna drop and it's gonna be right time for everybody when we get it (laughs) so listen i mean as a person who's known you that entire time i'm still waiting and i'm happily waiting it's not even anxiously it's i'm just like when it comes to me it's gonna come and i've told this to chelsea before but I've been really curious about tarot since I was a child. Like my grandma, I found her deck and her nightstand um, and I wasn't allowed to touch it, but I did. Um, <laughs> and as an adult, like I'm re-familiarizing myself with those practices, but I'm like, I'm not buying any deck until this one comes out because I need it to be my first one. It's just the alignment there. Like I can recall at some point, the last in-person AMC, um, we went together to workshops around Octavia Butler and Parable of the Sower. And I think it was like in prep for this tarot deck. Like we went to a workshop around like, how do you create your own tarot deck? And I remember us like collaging and tearing pieces of paper apart to like make our own cards. So it feels really amazing and magical to watch the trajectory and like still just be at the end of it like I know when it comes out it's gonna be magical yeah I'm really excited and we created this deck there's lots of things in the book that are gonna help guide people into like how to read the deck how to like really use it and we really want people that have never picked up a deck before to people that have been doing this their whole lives so we wanted to create this really hopefully accessible deck for people of like all ranges of interactions with this kind of work um, of using tarot. Oh, that's exciting. I'm I'm feeling excited for the people who've never, you know, used a deck before, like being able to engage as technology from the lineage of Octavia Butler. That is kind of mind blowing and exciting as a, a possibility that did not exist one before you had this dream and y'all made this work happen but also in general it's a kind of relatively new phenomenon where we have these images that reflect black women for example (laughs) yeah yeah that's super important and like oh something I missed is like part of the dream part of the vision is like this deck is going to be something you can just throw in your bag like in the apocalypse like you can just take it with you anywhere and that comes from 
Alamina in the parable books, like in her bag, like she had a bag full of stuff ready to go to like, you know, help feed people, help, you know, stitch people up. Like she had acorns in there. Like she had a bunch of things in her bag that were going to help her move through that apocalypse, through those hard times. And for me, this deck would be in everyone's bags. Like, so the deck is going to come in a box that's a little bigger you know, because some people like to like have fancy boxes and like display them. But there's also going to be like a smaller bag that you can just chuck your cards in and throw it in your backpack or your purse or whatever, even your pocket. And so you can just have those on you as quick as possible and help guide you through the apocalypse that we're kind of living in and right, right now. So like, what, how do I, how do I move? How do I do things? How do I just, how, how do I get guidance? And I personally don't use tarot as like, like a, fortune telling tool like I don't know what's gonna happen like things will happen and I'm just gotta let them happen but I use it more as like like a therapist or like someone guiding me or a really good friend and I think that that can be something that we all need and if we're especially if we're feeling really lonely in these times we can just grab our deck and have like a conversation with the deck in ourselves or the deck in our ancestors or the deck in the, in the universe or the deck in God, however you see it, like you can have that conversation and get some feedback and get some guidance. I love that you said that because that's for me how I've primarily used any kind of deck is this conversation with ancestors or conversation with the universe or conversation with God, specifically mm-hmm. those <laughs> ways. <laughs> um you know, where it's like, I don't, I can't tell which voice this is. This is probably not. Let me, let me get a little other perspective here. Yeah, exactly. Well, so we, you know, we're nearing the end of our time or have, and I really want to honor your time. And, you know, there are a couple of questions that I feel like we're trying to ask everyone for this new season, and I do not want you to get away without asking them. So the first is, you know, can you share with us some of the most important parts of your political lineage? I think we've already gleaned some from the stories you've shared and the questions we've asked, but... Yeah. yeah, the important parts of my political lineage. It's a good question. So yeah, I think through talking, I think Octavia E. Butler is one of those. And I think the wisdom from her books and the wisdom that she herself gave to all of us. I also think, so even getting into this world of thinking about myself in the world and how to move in it and how to like do organizing, part of it came from my dad so my dad isn't he doesn't do organizing work like officially although I think he's a natural organizer Um, (laughs) um, but he's very passionate about pretty much everything I bring to him he is a black man who's gone through so much stuff and we grew up you know in the same area so he went through all those things like in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s in a way that I can't even imagine But when I was a teenager, coming into kind of racial awakening, because I was like, who am I? (laughs) And like, thinking more about blackness specifically, I always thought about it. But I was like, how do I think about this differently? And I was doing like visual art. And I was making some art kind of like thinking through white supremacy and like what that is. And my dad noticed what I was doing. He's like, what about black power? 
And I was like, I don't know what that is, like what he was referencing. And that led me down the path of like reading about the Black Panthers and going to the library. Like I didn't, I didn't go on the internet. Um, went to the library and picked out actual books and like read about the Black Panthers. So I think the Black Panthers are like another like political lineage for me coming from my dad asking that very simple question of like, what about Black power? And that has stuck with me pretty much since I was 17 of yeah what about black power and how can I be about that always and be there for my people and then I think also Audrey Lord, like I have a tattoo of some of her work on my arm and I was just thinking about um the important work that she has done in her poetry her essays the things she's talked about her being disabled and like having cancer and like um the cancer journals and like reading those really helps me with my um, disability and like how to think about it and like how to be black and be disabled and still live a very free and joyful life in the way that I saw Audre Lorde um, doing that and it really helped me a lot I think also definitely Adrian um Adrian Marie Brown like I feel so blessed to be her friend and I feel so blessed to know her work and to be alive in the same time as Adrian. So I think emergent strategy like really opened my eyes to like, you're not a freak. Like maybe you are a freak, but in a positive way. But um, <laughs> this is what you're doing is like on the money. Like you're on the right path or other people who think like you. But I think ultimately my political lineage comes from a lot of like black freedom fighters uh, black artists uh, black disabled people just a lot of black people in the community who the community of like organizing work and also just the community of like the world and the diaspora and like really getting to engage with people from all over the world um i think that's like my ultimate lineage and like in like kind of tied back to all my ancestors and like what they've gone through and how I've even ended up in this space and I think about those ancestors and I think about me in the present I think about who in the Cleveland mind will exist in like a thousand years and I think even that is part of my political lineage because I am doing this work for that person and I'm living my life as freely and openly as I am for whoever that person is going to be. Thank you for sharing. Um, I love the I love the trajectory and the bringing those that are before and also the considering those to come. It just feels like such an important part of um, our considerations and our practice. And so to that end, we also want to know, you know, because at the heart of transformation is practice, simple, basic practice. So what are you practicing and is emergent strategy showing up in your practices? Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm practicing letting go and allowing change to come as it needs to come. And that's a huge part of emergent strategy. And I think, you know, Adrian references like God has changed from Octavia's book so much. And I've been sitting with that a lot lately. God has changed. And a lot of that's actually come up in some of my tarot readings for myself lately is you can't control everything and I have to just let things happen as they happen. Like I can control myself and my own actions, but what comes from that and comes around me, I don't have any control over. So kind of just like letting go and being okay with that. 
And I'm also practicing something I'm really like chewing on lately and I want to think about more and maybe then maybe there's people who want to like chew on it with me is this practice of loneliness as fermentation. So I was reading this book called Tarot for Change and I got the Four of Swords, I believe. And in the chapter, the book is really bringing tarot in and like therapy. It's a beautiful book. I highly suggest it. And there's like a poem in there and like things in there about like how you ferment when you are in your loneliness um, and how you season. And I just wonder as someone who has often felt really lonely through my whole life, like this practice of like thinking of myself as going through a fermentation process. And like, so for example, when you're making miso or kombucha, like you put these things together in a jar or a bottle and you leave them in the dark and you leave them in the dark for months and they don't spoil like just leaving out your dinner on the counter. They will transform into something much richer, much more interesting. And it is something that is delicious. And um, I wonder how I can like be in that practice of fermentation as a human being, especially in the time of COVID, especially in the winter when loneliness, I think, or being alone is much higher for people. How do I learn the lessons from that? And I think, I don't know if this like is a connected to emergent strategy necessarily. I would, would love to be in conversation about it since it's such a new thing I'm trying to practice and think about, but I'm deeply interested in like what that practice looks like instead of spoiling and feeling bad and like learning nothing. I guess maybe like never a failure, always a lesson. Like what are the lessons I can learn in that process as I'm changing in this bit of loneliness that I'm in? Yeah, I love that. It's, I, it also makes me think of what you pay attention to. So I'm like, I would love to continue that exploration and conversation because I think about that a lot, both in terms of, I think the quality of aloneness that people have, you can experience when it's really generative um, because it's like a really rich interior life from the dreamscapes, the landscapes, the the thinking, the thoughts that are come through that, the writing, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But I think a lot of that requires aloneness and requires the comfort of being alone. And then that is a different quality of loneliness that comes with people or loneliness that is isolating Right. And so I love this notion of like the fermentation versus the spoiling inside of this kind of lonely scape, uh, a loneliness scape. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's exciting. Thank you for sharing. I love that analogy, Chelsea. Um, And I think I love that as a practice for you. And I feel also maybe I've seen you in some of that practice already, whether you were naming it or realizing it or not. Um, and thinking about kombucha, right, it goes to multiple fermentation processes sometimes. Like There's a first, maybe sometimes a second for flavoring and all of those things. And maybe this is like more of a second fermentation process mm-hmm. um, because I think of kombucha as something that like most people are like, hmm, like it's a particular taste that you acquire. Yeah. And now more so people are like, kombucha, oh my God, we love it. And that's very true to just some of what I've heard you say and just the experience of like 
you were bringing so many things that a lot of folks weren't ready for. And now they're just catching on and like their palates have adapted and they're just like, kombucha, let's go. Um, And that's a lot of like what's happened with like some of those practices around just so many different things that you were bringing into our movement work. Yeah. And I think also to that is like fermentation can also take years. Like you can have miso that takes years or like a good wine like it gets better as it ages so like you know if people are just catching up on some of the I got immediately what you're saying um if people are just kind of catching up on what I've been bringing and like are finding like oh this tastes good I like this kombucha I like this miso that also happens like in kind of these waves and I'm just interested in like what this looks like years out and not only just loneliness I just read something interesting about this person that does like she calls it neuroemergent work and actually references Adrian and part of something that she talks about is like with a neurodivergent mind or like for example like people with ADHD or autism can have neurodivergent minds is like stop thinking of things in like just hours or days like you know the projects you're working on and maybe who even you're becoming but how do you look at things in months years and decades like how do we like expand these things longer than a couple of days a couple of weeks often in like you know nonprofit models or in organizing work things are like we got to do things quick 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 but how do we expand the practices we're in and think about them for decades and kind of coming back to the things we've left behind and having all these years to kind of like sit on it and really marinate in it and I just also think about that practice in terms of uh, fermentation as well as like where will I be decades from now if I'm in these various practices I'm in? What's going to happen when I'm 60? And what is that flavor going to be like by the time I get there? And how is how's being 32 influenced all the time in between and up to that point? Um, so I'm like really excited for the juiciness that comes out of these different practices and not just thinking about them in these small increments, but like going decades and decades and maybe even past my lifetime, what will it look like for me to be in this practice and then have someone again, maybe in a thousand years be learning and benefiting from those lessons. Yeah. I was just talking to one of our other podcast guests about also how, because Things grow at different paces because you seed in different moments that also the blooms and the blossoms of what you experience, you know, may happen over time in different ways. And so there is that way in which it can feel like, oh, there's a lot happening now, but it's like, actually, that was decades in the making or (laughs) because of what you see flowering or that the capacity just to tend and to be in your practice, you don't actually have to worry too much about the blossom. You just have to be in your practice and tending and a lot can unfold from there. Just two more questions. Like what's emerging for you? Like if you do have a next experiment that you are in the space of? I think right now what I'm an experiment in or what I hope to be in is a couple of things. One, I've been thinking a lot about how I've been just really burnt out from nonprofit work. Like I think nonprofits aren't going to get us free, but I think it's like a stepping stone to like whatever iteration is next on the path towards freedom. But I think the way a lot of them are set up, a lot of the practices that nonprofits have like really 
burn a lot of people out and maybe cause that heartbreak. And so I'm like, oh, I but I need a job like eventually or like I need like steady income. So what do I do? And I'm like not actually like like that that's a thought in the back of my head because I live under capitalism, but at the front of my head and the rest of my body, I'm like I don't want to do those things. So what can I do to like really support and help my community in a way that's different than how I did it, you know, in the past like decade. And I have been thinking a lot about how do I create spaces of free, like free stores. That's a concept that's been around for a long time, but like places where people can go kind of like a library, which, you know, support local libraries, you know, they're one of the last places you can go for free, but like where are more spaces people can gather that are free and offer things like, and one of the bigger goals of hearing youth voices for years was like, and I think Yanni really started that goal was like having a cafe and like having a space for like young people to go to. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently is like, where can people go to and like just relax and like get free clothes. And um, there's a mutual aid group in New London who does offer those things like downtown once a month but they don't have like a space to do that. And I really am thinking about physical space. I have a friend, Christiana Smith, who is transforming her yard into a space like that. So she just bought a house. And so how can she use her yard as a place for the community around her to like really interact with each other? And like, I find inspiration in that a hundred times over. I'm just thinking a lot about how I can move into doing more of that work of community building community space that isn't necessarily tied to a foundation giving us money so what are the new models that we need to be experimenting in and I know a lot of places are doing a lot of experimentation with mutual aid groups especially during the pandemic but I want to keep experimenting and get back into actually being with people I've not been with them for the past two years and another thing is I am an experiment of like relating to people like um how to like give my love, how to show my love in huge ways to a lot of folks. I'm in this place of like studying and reading a lot and talking a lot to people about like polyamory and like the limits of polyamory and like how it doesn't feel expansive enough for me. And there's still a lot of like monogamous like structures and thoughts in the way people kind of interact with people that they really share love with. And as someone who has trouble like sharing love to people, like of all capacities, like it's difficult sometimes for me to even like get, I, I can count on my hands how many times I've given someone a hug. How can I be in this experiment of like, what are the expansive ways that I can show love to people and like all people can like show love to people that don't feel like there's this hard limit based on like this box we've been given to live in, especially in the United States. So I don't know how that's going to turn out, but it's like this experiment personally that I also just want to bring out. That's not just like me personally, um, but those are the two kind of experiments I want to be in. And I'm thinking a lot about. I love that. I love it. I feel like <laughs> I'm like, I want to zoom you in for dinner conversation with my teenage child that is in those particular questions quite a great deal um both from the commune and the free spaces to the different ways in the limitless love that fall yeah. inside of what also works for their body yeah. and their capacity so I love that that's so exciting okay final uh what's the most resonant question for you for me right now it's how do I 
love my full self without needing external things to fill me up? Wow. Yeah. That's a question. That's a question. That's a question. feels like that right there, you know, is the, maybe a key to undoing capitalism and a key to undoing so many of the isms and a key to our liberation. So thank you for the question. Thank you for being in it. Thank you for all your practices and for sharing your miraculous and precious time with us today. It's been really, really lovely to be in this conversation with you, Chelsea. Well, thank you. I am really glad that I was invited to do this and I am kind of buzzing with all the things that I want to continue thinking about and hopefully like take some of the threads of this out into the world. But I'm excited to be here and excited to see what happens, what kind of change happens that I have no control over that comes out of this. Um, I can continue to be in all those practices. Awesome. And thank you, Yanitza. It was so nice to have y'all in conversation and your dynamic is so sweet and lovely. And so thank you for sharing your miraculous and precious time today. Absolutely, y'all. Thank you for letting me crash. This was a super sweet moment. I appreciate being in conversation with you both. This podcast is produced by Mari Orozco. Production coordination by Aliana Coelho. Transcription by Hannah Pepper Cunningham. Music for the Emergent Strategy Podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riffraff and their album Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, you can make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESF.